Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we're back after a short furlough with news of crowdfunding for Japanese films, China laying down some film law, and then it's a Halloween hangover with Patrick Kong's Are You Here? This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, and coming to you from his news desk at an abandoned secondary school in Sheng Shui is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello, everybody. Uh, rather echoey in here. Um, hi there, Paul. How, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. Uh, you know, it's been a while since we talked, uh, mid-October to be precise. It and has, wow, yeah. what happened? Where did we go? <laughs> it's like we, it, it's, it's, it's almost like we had a, a second long hiatus going on. Um, but yeah, October got really busy, and mostly this was on my end, so I do apologize uh, for the layover. Uh, last time we talked, I thought, I, I think I'd mentioned that we were going to do uh, Our Times, possibly, as, as the next film, and there was um, several other films that came out in October that I had hoped to either get to or to touch on, and that just did not happen, and mostly that's on me. Um, quite a few things happened in mid-October. I had family come in suddenly. Uh, well, not suddenly. I knew they were coming, but uh, I, they kind of, because it's, it was around the time of the my annual rotation around the sun, as I like to call it, and they had surprised me with a little short uh, trip that I wasn't expecting, so that ate up a bunch of time. Um, work got really busy, and uh, some side projects I'm working on also suddenly got really busy. And all of this was in the build-up to, of course, Halloween, which for me is um, arguably my favorite holiday out of all the holidays. And um, I decided this year I wanted to throw a little Halloween party. Hadn't done one in a number of years, and so there was planning and setting up for all the festivities and that kind of stuff. And it just Every time I turned around to try and want to get out to see a film, um, it just, I couldn't schedule it. And in part, the blame is on me, but I also have to blame local cinema, because this is an issue that I think we touched on before, but it's really getting kind of annoying in that the scheduling for a lot of local films is really terrible. And a lot of the moments when I did have a free couple hours, you know, the, the films weren't being screened. Um, in regular screening times. So, uh, needless to say, unfortunately, we could not patch a show together, so I do apologize. But we're back. It's November. We're in post-holiday mode. At least I am. So, Kevin, how you doing? Well, we're kind of... Well, you were putting the blame on yourself, Paul, but actually, you know, it was kind of a back-to-back thing. I mean, when, by the time you finished getting busy, you know, um, uh, with the, when you were, the party time came, I got too busy, and I missed the party. Um, yeah. So unfortunately, but um, no, I've been pretty busy. Um, actually, I wasn't so busy when you were busy, and then some. You know, I was watching films, and the Asian Film Festival was starting, and then all the work came. 
So um, yeah, no, it's been crazy. It's got translations to translations, and of course, you know, I got day job, and just sort of I've been missing movies too. But of course, I still try to get out to watch all the local films. You were saying that the the cinema always um, are removing films after the first week. Um, a few examples, uh, for example, the the Crossing Two only opened in two cinemas um, with two shows each. At very extreme times, meaning weekday uh, weekday mornings, uh, weekday afternoons, and even on the weekend, there's only one show scheduled early in the morning at like eight forty. Um, <clears throat> other local local titles, like I guess after the first week, they're not or after the first weekend, they don't do well. Then then the um, cinemas immediately start cutting shows because there is such a really crowded season at the moment that um, that you know there really is no room and there are not enough cinemas here, here in Hong Kong. So. For example, you have uh, um, there was one weekend when nine films came out. So you know, cinemas had to clear a lot of shows to make room for those titles because there were screening commitments and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, it's just been. For example, I'm gonna miss Black Mass. You know, I really wanted to see that film. Um, I'm missing it because after it didn't do very well the first weekend, um, um, it's getting down to only like five shows a day in all of Hong Kong. Um, and because you know my schedule is just way too swamped, I can't even find t- match it, find a time that matches me. So I'm just gonna have to you know rent out iTunes or something. But um, the worst thing is I am missing Big Fortune Hotel. Do you even know what film that is, Paul? Oh yeah, I saw it yesterday. In fact, holy shit! <laughs> here, here, got, what the? F- here, 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 in fact, is a case, a perfect example of this, where they basically it's a new film uh, that just came out the past Thursday. Uh, as of the time we're recording this, and it only had like two screenings uh, Wait, per, per, per day. That, well, that, um, that film is understandable because no one wants to watch that film. So it's it's like a dump. It's like it was like on a shelf for five years before they dumped it. Yeah. So uh, uh, well, the, there were some people watching it with me, so I wasn't the only one in the theater. Um, this, this messed up, Paul. Yeah. I I saw I saw Hazy Lazy Crazy. I saw uh, uh, um. Uh, she remembers he forgets. You probably didn't see those, but you saw Big Fortune Hotel. Yes, and I justify my choice. I could have gone out to see either of those other films, but I justify my choice with this. I know that Big Fortune Hotel is probably not a film that I would want to buy, right, <laughs> um, later on. So I figured, let me just go and, and, and get this out of the way because it's going to be gone next week, and my only chance to see it then will be if I actually go and shell out for uh, you know, a DVD or heaven forbid a Blu-ray. So yeah, I, I kind of bit the bullet, and I, we're not going to cover that on here, I don't think, because uh, we have a we'll have a better, more interesting film next week to talk about. But uh, I may do a write-up for it. I may see if Kozo wants a written review for it over for his side or something. Um, well, well, quickly, should I make time to see it? Uh, I make time to see it. That's uh, that's that's uh, yeah. How much free time do you have? <laughs> if you don't have a lot of free time, I'd say no. If it's Probably between, not. if it's between James Bond and Big Fortune Hotel. Yeah, no. Uh, although I'm not a huge fan of the current James Bond run, but yeah, uh, it's not your kind of film either because it is. It does get into the to the horror category, but it's more horror comedy than anything else. Um, or as in it's so terrible that is it's it's scary. <laughs> well, that's or? a that's a different kind of horror, but it is it is a ghost movie technically. Um, it was interesting for me to see it because it's primarily shot in Malaysia, but it's so low budget; it's almost like a student film 
at times. Oh, yeah, I uh, saw that trailer. It looks really yeah, terrible. Yeah, uh, but it does, you know it does have some uh, some things to attract uh, Hong Kong film fans. La Lan is in it, and she's always great. And you know there are a couple other recognizable faces, mostly from TVB and stuff. And of course, as we were talking about Paco Chow, who's basically in everything, right? <laughs> was it like five movies a day? I, I was just telling Paul that I'm actually translating subtitles for for Paco Chabu right now, and I think it's just like he's like the new Sean Yu. Except yeah, this you know, is, this is really like his year. I mean, 2015, he's been in um, almost like half a dozen films. Yeah, but except except you know when Sean Yu was really doing the nine movies a year, at least some of those films were hits. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> Ow. Ow. Yeah. We can come back to that point. We do actually have some actual things to talk about this week. We're going to be talking about the latest Patrick Kong film in a little bit, but we have some news to get to first, so let me throw it over to Kevin and his news desk with this week's news. Swing it over to uh, the news desk here. A couple of things to talk about. I mean, it's been so long, but I- I'm trying not to you know, fit in everything that's happened, so it's just a few key stories um so to speak um um okay well first of all wow okay here we go so for the release to coincide with the release of patrick kong's anniversary the film's called anniversary um i guess his first film starring stephanie tang alex fong since gosh i think you know this the best uh which film what's the Um. last Marriage with a Fool was it? Or no, no, that was the first film. Um, I think their last film was. Jeez, what's the third um, film in that trilogy? Elf for, for Love, Elf for Lies, or Love is Not All Around. Love is Not All Around, second one. Okay, so Elf is for Love, Elf is for Lies. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so this the real life couple uh, actually is they're back with a so called tenth anniversary film. I'm not even sure why anyone is counting the years. Um, to coincide with that anniversary, Patrick Kong or someone is deciding to hold a retrospective of Patrick Kong's romances uh, or romance films. So that is happening next month. And actually on the official, so the side story here that we don't know, the retrospective part of the news, but the funniest part is that um, when the distributor Pan-Asia Films um, announced it, um, essentially it's going to be 10 films or something that's been being screened over a three-week period. Um at but the, there's summer. only seven listed on the on the, the poster, right? I'm sorry, I guess seven films. But, I, I wasn't but counting. I'm guessing that they're trying to, I mean, because they're not counting Anniversary itself. And they're also not counting um, his film that's coming out in the coming week. So yeah, that, we turned to Cuckoo. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a retrospective of his films. And the funniest thing is when Pan-Asia Films posted that poster on their Facebook, like, it got bombarded with messages going, um, is Patrick Kong dead? Or uh, why are you guys doing this? And uh, I'm I'm proud of having never seen one. <laughs> or uh, what what is what is Hong Kong's Woody Allen doing here? Because Hong Kong Woody Allen is like a is like a, a sarcastic name for him because I think that's what he's called himself once. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so it's just I'm baffled. I mean, not only. It, does the list have one film that he didn't direct, which is um, uh, S for Sex, S for Secrets, which he did write and produce? It also does not include uh, Love is Not All Around, which is part of that, you know, Steffi Alex Fong trilogy. So it's just like, 
is any director you know uh, um, qualify for a retrospective now? If Wong Jing has never had a retrospective, why you know what makes Patrick Kong more qualified to have a retrospective before Wong Jing does? So you know it's just kind of odd, and I think that Patrick Kong might have put it together himself that he's sort of seen that his films have so much significance that he feels like I mean the fact that the man is so. Uh, uh, into his own films that he decides to make a 10th anniversary films to this trilogy that really barely anyone remembers uh, once they hit the age of 20 um, that it is sort of self-serving right I, I don't know I shouldn't be be you know that critical I guess for my position but Paul I, I'll, I'll leave the criticism to you yeah I think that it's pretty uh, my perspective is this it's it's a marketing job uh, it's a marketing ploy just to get his name out there, you know, in the build-up to Return of the Cuckoo, and then you know his, you know his Steffi and Alex pairing, which doesn't have a release date as I understand it, but is is I saw the trailer for this yesterday. It was said sometime in 2015, and I think you sent me a message later saying that um, it's scheduled for December, right? December 31st with yeah. previews over Christmas holiday, you know, because, you know, when it, when it comes to, you know, Christmas films, you think it man free or anniversary. I, I don't know. It's a very tough. Choice. Or Star Wars, right? So, it was a week before you get that out of the way before, yeah. you know, the real Christmas films come, you know. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's I, a lot of people are hard on Patrick Kong. I tend to enjoy his films a little bit more than most, much like I enjoy Wong Jing films a little bit more than most. But a lot of them are hit or miss. And it is interesting, like you pointed out, that one of the films on the list isn't a directorial film. It's a, one where he was a producer and scriptwriter. And in fact, um, that's kind of been his working role this year, because earlier we talked about... Um, um, what was the Ivana Wong movie? Uh, Love Detective. Love Detective, which he also did with, um, um, he, he wrote, but he did not direct. Um, and it was Jill Wong who did that. And then also the one we're talking about this week is another uh, Patrick Kong scripted, but not directed film. So this seems to be his working mode this year is that he's moved away from the director's chair and uh, has kind of taken up producing and script writing a little bit more. I think I think he just sort of realized that that um, that he could use put his scripts and put it in the hands of more visual oriented directors um, like like Joe Wan um, and but he's I think he's still according to his Instagram I'm a little ashamed that to say that I still follow his Instagram um, he is actually on set on all those films and he, he participates participates in the, in the production of all those films directly so he might as well be like the director i guess but i guess less pressure on him right you know because he's not actually doing the directing and to be fair he is a fairly prominent director for the what is it, like post 80s post 90s kids i mean they go see his movies um when i watch his movies in the cinema and i look around who's sitting there it's you know uh, student it's people i'd recognize as my students in a couple years and the, he ends up becoming a director of focus for a lot of papers that I end up marking. You know, a lot of people are interested in writing on his films. Now, whether he'll be remembered uh, going forward in the next decade or not, whether he, you know, he'll be deemed worthy of another retrospective or not that's not of his own making in international film festivals and whatnot, uh, you know, that remains to be seen. But I give him some credit for at least 
keeping the local industry going. You know, he doesn't make quite as many films as Wong Jing does, but he does keep people employed. And uh, not all of his films are terrible. What I think would be interesting to do um, for fans out there is you go over to the, um, the Love HK Film Facebook post and put in your own list. What would be your choices for a Patrick Kong retrospective? Um, because as I looked over the list, I, I was like thinking, eh, this wouldn't be the films that I would necessarily pick. Um, I well, might... specifically for a romances, because that's what Patrick Kong brands himself as. It's like the master of Rome, Hong Kong youth romance. So that was the that's actually the angle of the. Uh, yeah, the but he's got some films there that uh, I. There are other films that you could qualify as romances that are not necessarily included on that list, versus others like you point out that he didn't necessarily direct. There are some that I would maybe include in that list over others, but that's just you know my thinking off the cuff, as it were. I I still don't think the whole thing makes any sense. Yeah. But. but the great thing is is that all, I think all of these films are being screened at the Sky, uh, a fairly nice theater in, in Hong Kong, one of the newer theaters. But, you know, if you can't make it out to Hong Kong, folks, you can get all this stuff pretty cheaply and just do it yourself, right? Hold your own Patrick Kong retrospective from the comfort of your own home. I, I was going to say something about slice, slashing my wrist, but I don't know if I should make that Comment. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> anyway, let's move on from Patrick Kong. We'll come back to him in a little bit with our review. Uh, so, Kevin, you have some news about uh, Japanese film distribution, is it? Yes. A um, well, crowdfunding. Uh, it's kind of the new internet thing. You know, <laughs> I'm speaking like an old geezer. Yeah, crowdfunding is a new yeah. trend. Get off um, my lawn, you social media kids! Why are you all raising your socialists, you know, just raising money off the internet? No, crowdfunding is a fantastic thing. I mean, it's always been for, you know, startups and, and I guess, you know, uh, inventor whiz um, products and things like that. But um, in Japan, uh, it's been, well, I mean, in Hong Kong, we also have Hong Kong Free Press, which is really one of the biggest, most successful crowdfunding campaigns ever um, in, Hong, in Hong Kong. Um, but over in Japan, um, Japanese directors, artists, uh, indie filmmakers have also been turning to crowdfunding for some of their project. Uh, for example, a um, director for a uh, film that's under the PIA Film Festival scholarship um, essentially that gives uh, it's a scholarship or a program that gives the winning director of the PIA Short Film Festival a chance to make a feature film. Um, the PIA Film Festival turned to crowdfunding to fund that film, I think, last year. Um, and it was actually successful. Um, the director of um, uh, gosh, Goemon and 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 Kashern, uh, Kiria, his name is Kiria. He turned to crowdfunding to make a uh, video project, and that was fairly successful as well. Actually, hit his goal. Um, a now a local, a sm very small local distributor is now trying to use crowdfunding to uh, get. Uh, money for the distribution of a, um, a Filipino art house film. Uh, the film is called Ruined Heart, another love story between a criminal and a whore. Um, the film actually competed last year in the Tokyo International Film Festival's main competition, so that is a pretty big deal. It stars Asano Taranobu, which is a, you know, he's a well known name. Um, and also, it was shot by uh, Christopher Doyle. He was the mass uh, director of cinematography for that film. And yet, that film could not get normal distribution in Japan because a lot of distributors, um, indie distributors, they're too, 
you know, actually the indie world in Japan now is way too tough. The mini theater world, um, the art house cinema world is is closing. It's, it's very much rapidly kind of uh, shrinking. A lot of the smaller old theaters, uh, even including, you know, a lot of uh, iconic indie theaters in Tokyo are closing down. So and it's getting to be a problem. So this distributor, Tokyo New Cinema, um, well, first, they, they were brave enough to buy the rights to that film. And it's a very artsy film because I've seen it. It's a very, very artsy film. There's no plot. It's only an hour. There's no dialogue. It's all pretty much all music. Um, it's very gritty. Um, it's pretty much a visual poem. So it's not very you know typical narrative film that audiences, not even indie audiences, would go for. So what Tokyo New Cinema did was that they you know they actually went and brought the bought the rights, um, and now they're using a, a crowdfunding campaign to hopefully raise two point seven million yen to um, essentially put together a distribution campaign for the film, a very limited release, in fact. Now, how much is two point seven million yen? That's twenty two thousand dollars U.S. That's not a lot, dude, that's not a lot, not a lot of money. Um, the project, according to the project page, um, the company will, will spend, you know, 1.25 million, uh, which is about half of that, on promotion of the film. Um, 400,000 yen on the print material, so I guess printing flyers and things like that. And 1.05 million just on perks and administrative fees for the, for the crowdfunding platform, uh, the company. So... You know, it does cost a lot of money to to distribute a film um, for its distributor, um, especially when you only get to keep half the box office gross. That means um, Tokyo New Cinema, if they try to release this film on their own, that film needs to make 5 million yen just to make it worth their while, just to break even. And a film like this, um, on a very, very limited release, we're talking about maybe one, two screens at a time nationwide, and it's over a long period of time. It's a very, very difficult um, uh, uh, effort to try and make their money back, especially for a small distributor that's, that doesn't really have cash lying around to sort of wait for the money to roll in to break even. Um, so, um, you know, according to Kinoichi, Kinoichi Riko, who is the, the, the you know, uh, head of Tokyo New Cinema, um, he says that, you know, a lot of films in Japan now, they're double doubled number of films from let's say five years ago but yet the cinemas has decreased this means that you have doubled number of films trying to fight for screening times in a limited number of screens which is very much like what's happening in hong kong that means that uh, um smaller films films that don't attract an audience are pulled out of cinemas very quickly they're given unfavorable screening times just to fulfill some kind of screening commitment to the distributors and things like that. So it's an incredibly difficult world in Asia, um, in Japan, in Hong Kong to distribute smaller films. Um, I'm going to put up the crowdfunding campaign uh, page. Um, I guess I'll put it in our notes so Paul can put that in there. Um, they have 40 days to go as of today as we're recording. Um, they've already made 947,000 yen, which is only 35% of the goal. So um, I guess if you're in Japan or if you somehow can make it work beyond the Japanese language page, um, you know, go ahead and give it some support. Um, I think it's a whether I like the film or not, it's not really matter. Um, I would contribute to it just because they have such a great, you know, 
just because it's it's a very you know no noble effort. Um, but unfortunately, I don't have a Japanese credit card and I can't get through all that stuff. But um, yeah, um, you know, this is just says something about you know the 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 life of smaller films here in Asia uh, against the big. And I'm not even talking about Hollywood. I'm talking about big big company films. You know, like say in China, there's practically no small film distribution in Hong Kong. Uh, um, you get films like Hitman Free that's going to pretty much wipe out the cinemas or you get big media Asia product, you know, Helios or you get your uh, um, something like that, you know, taking up most of the screen. But where is the room for smaller dramas? Um, so I think there's something that we can learn from crowdfund is crowdfunding the future is crowdfunding something that 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 Hong Kong filmmakers can use to their advantage. I don't know. Um, Paul, what, what do you think about this? Well, yeah, I mean, I I think that uh, somebody who's participated in crowdfunding, you mentioned Hong Kong Free Press and others, and I've supported uh, independent people and artists through Patreon and uh, some of some of the other backing systems over the years, and, and I still have some going on. Um, one thing that tends to happen, though, is if you participate regularly in these kinds of things, um, your funds for doing so dry up very quickly. Um, there was a point where I found I was like backing, um, you know, doing monthly backings of people that I really like their work. And, uh, you know, I was spending as much as a cable subscription or more, you know, at, at some points and I had to kind of trim it back, um, and, and be a little bit more, um, discretionary with, um, how I was doing this. Cause that kind of stuff, you don't realize it, but a dollar here, $5 there starts to add up. Um, per month now with some things where it's just a one-off um, you know that that can always be a good investment especially if you're getting something like a, you know a, a piece of media a book or a movie at the end I'm, I'm reflecting back to a friend of the show Marco Spomberg and some of the work he did um, you know where he would uh, do do crowdfunding to help produce some of his work the part of the problem though with this kind of stuff that I have and I think we've talked about this before is when people who are already successful are kind of using it and using their name um, to do projects when I think that they already have the the name power to go out and get funds through traditional outlets. So where we get directors and celebrities and people who are looking to the public to crowdfund a project when they don't really need to. Um, I, I kind of see crowdfunding as you know, getting the people who don't have a name, you know, getting their work out there, who don't have the the celeb power or the star power, the connections to actually work, you know, the traditional producing circuit. It's also the funds. backers, right? The backers tend to give funding to, a, to you know, people they, they know of or they hear about or they've heard of. So that's it's kind of like a vicious cycle, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, it is. And it's just like anything. It's like, you know, just like podcasting. And when podcasting starts out, it's a bunch of, you know, people who are pushing the technology, who are early adopters, and then it starts to pick up, and then the mainstream gets on, and you get your MSNBCs and, you know, all your sort of mainstream media companies hopping on the podcasting circuit. Uh, and then they end up crowding it. And that's just the nature of the cycle, unfortunately. It's it's something that I've started to notice happening in different crowdfunding sites. All right, uh, final bit of news this week. China laying down the law once again, right? Well, they're not really laying down the law. Um, okay, here's the thing. Um, you know, China has censorships, uh, and, and actually, you know, they have a whole department for this, a governmental authority for this. But apparently, they do actually not have, you know, solid 
law is for all of this stuff uh, for film essentially regulation of the film industry. A lot of it is just sort of put down by the by the uh, state administrative or administration for press publication, radio, film, and television. Um, so now they've actually finally submitted the first film law in the history of China or in the history of the People's Republic of China. Now there's your first um, essentially law regarding regulating to regulate films or to also promote film. So anyway, it's very complicated. But anyway, the first draft of this film law has been submitted to the um, National People's Congress Standing Committee. Um, this this law has been in the works since 2003. Essentially, it turns all these film uh, rules for filmmakers into law. Um, so you could say it's formalizing these these rules that already lofty rules that already exist. But at the same time, it also simp- they also you know it's kind of like a tweak of uh, current regulations. So um, for example, um, SARF, I would just call them SARF now because uh, well, it doesn't really read SARF, but whatever. So SARF proposed um, uh, things like punitive measures for box office rigging practices. Um, essentially upping the, the fine that was originally um, that they originally uh, 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 stated uh, and making it from 50,000 RMB maximum to 500,000 RMB maximum uh, this, this is a fine that would go to cinemas that don't accurately report box office revenue there's a huge problem that's plaguing the industry that's plagued the industry for years actually um, since I was writing blogs so imagine how, how long that must have been um and there's also the official, you know, how uh, when films play overseas, they have to get uh, um, censorship permission. Um, well, certain films or many films, when they get permission to play overseas at festivals, they don't necessarily have a screening license back in back at home. Well, now China requires you to have a local screening license back at home before you send it out um, overseas for film festival uh, screenings. For example, uh, Touch of Sin was a film that was approved for overseas play at film festival. Believe it or not, it was approved by local censors before it played overseas, but then it never got a, a local screening license. So that's kind of... It seems like there was two different group of people who were trying to work on this thing. But um, And then also, um, this is something that they announced in 2013 that SARF would essentially drop the the, uh, script censorship process. Um, they would only they would they would accept a short treatment of the film before before approving it to production. Um, if the law is approved, that would become, you know, law. Um, but of course, the proposal actually only qualifies quote unquote general topic films, and there is still a debate going on about what is a general topic film, which is something that really plagues the Chinese film industry when it comes to these kind of rules because they're all really abstract terms that can be kind of you know, interpreted in, in different ways as, as the authorities see fit. So that's why it's very odd there's no like one um, uh, solid or no specific law that people can actually, you know, grab onto or just follow that. But yeah, that, that is a problem in China. Um, and they also officially ban, you know, several types of content, you know, things that we already know, for example, superstition. So that's why there's no horror films, films that undermine cultural traditions, other religions, uh, films that promote vices. These are all things that are pretty much, you know, uh, rules that, you know, that would just become law. And again, very abstract and can be kind of twisted for the filmmaker's convenience or to trouble filmmakers um that's the kind of beauty of very abstract rules right that it can be 
it can be twisted to serve both sides. Um, and of course, the law also provides uh, or, or essentially demands that you know government bodies or the film industry provides subsidies for rural screenings, uh, film assistance, uh, things like that. Uh, but most interesting, actually, the most interesting law that's or new thing that's being put in this proposal is that now filmmakers can appeal officially appeal SARF decisions. For example, if they you know demand certain cuts. Um, a filmmaker or film company can actually appeal and ask for a different group of censors to essentially review the film again uh, to to give it the cuts. So that's, I think, the most interesting thing. I mean, filmmakers have been known to go into, uh, to walk in the film bureau and negotiate cuts. Jia Zhangke is one of the biggest, actually, he, he's one of the most, he frequently visits the film bureau to discuss uh, film his films. Uh, Ning Hao, when he did No Man's Land, he also went with ex- extensive negotiations of Sarved over No Man's Land. Um, but now this sort of makes it official that, yeah, you can appeal the process instead of just doing this negotiations you know, under the table with censors, face-to-face with censors, you can actually appeal the process. So that's kind of interesting. Um, so in terms, there are a lot of changes when it's approved. Not really. Some things are simplified. Uh, production license process, you know, that stuff that doesn't really, you know, uh, affect us. Um, uh, film festival, film festival process. Yeah, now you have to have the Dragon logo. Uh, a lot of films that play overseas already have uh, screening approval anyway, so it's not a big deal. Um, but I guess that sort of makes the sense. You know, it makes the censorship a little more strict because I think films that get approval to play overseas tend to be a little more risque. Uh, I think the censors sort of let them get away with more things than the the local screening version. Um, yeah, so those, those are two big things. Um, I don't know if you're in the mood or if you want to talk about Chinese censorship at the moment. Uh, yeah, any any comments about this? One point in your article that really kind of raised my eyebrows more than anything else, and you say that under the new law, students would be required to watch at least two films that the education ministry and Saprift deem uh, beneficial to healthy growth of minors. Yeah, I think actually, I don't think this is a new thing. You know, kids get brought to movie screenings all the time. Like, it's like one of those food trips, and they go to a theater and watch a film, and most of those times are, you know, propaganda films. Yeah, but now it's um, the law. It's the law. You have to go and watch movies. I'll be I'll be curious to see what that list of 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 films will turn out to be. Yeah, like is it like rescreenings of Founding of a Republic, or you know, are they? Well, gonna, I think for example, uh, Space Stream, I think was a beneficial film to growth of minors. Um, I'm not sure what the list is, but you know, mm-hmm. there you know, kids film for example. I think you know, Monkey King Hero is back might be one of those films because it did super well, and it's mm-hmm. a you know something that's out of traditional folklore, blah blah blah, and you know, animation films, a lot of animation. I think a lot of family films would be under that. Whether they're good or not, that's another thing, but. Yeah. But this yeah. will this one this will just be local films. It won't include like Kung Fu Panda three, right? Oh hell no! Those are those are beneficial to the healthy growth of minors. Come on, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they'll be mainly local, homegrown fare. Yeah, I'm sure. Let us move on. Let's take a short musical interlude, and we'll be back uh, with our film review for this week.
And we're back. Our film this week is Are You Here? A horror story, ghost story, just in time for Halloween from director Jill Wong, Wong Pake, with uh, writing and production, uh, the producing side of things, kind of taken up by, as we mentioned, um, uh, Patrick Kong. So this is a, a film basically that falls in the vein of... Um, the uh, Troublesome Night series, kind of, except it's not a true anthology, although it does feel like it has anthological elements to it at times. The story is basically the girlfriend of an app developer, um, Sammy Sum, um, is the developer, whose gambling addiction has led their small company to the brink of breaking apart, finds fortune when a rich investor offers them a large sum of money to complete her late son's Ouija app. Uh, so it seems like with this influx of cash, their fortunes have reversed. But as the team draws closer to completing the app, strange things begin to happen to each of them. And um, one wonders, are these coincidences or is there something more? So I kind of wish I'd seen this before Halloween. I actually saw it a couple days after Halloween. I think I might have been in more of the proper mindset. So this was released a couple days before Halloween itself. wasn't able to get out and see it in time. Um, and, and as I said, this does feel somewhat akin to the uh, Troublesome Night series, which I, as a Hong Kong film fan, um, you know, really enjoyed a lot back in the day. At least, at least the first couple, you know, got, it's kind of where Louis Ku um, got a little bit of his start. Some of the later ones, when they started shooting stuff on video, um, those, were, those were pretty bad. And uh, I would say... You know, you can avoid those. But if you've never seen the Troublesome Night, Night series, you want to go back and watch at least like the first three or four, which are pretty good. So this is a standard kind of uh, ghost story. It centers on uh, four characters primarily who work at this small firm. The main character, we would say, is um, uh, really Jacqueline Chong, a, a Patrick Kong regular. And she, uh, I give her credit here because um, she normally comes out and she's... Um, heavy makeup and kind of all dolled up. For this role, she downplays it really well. She doesn't have a lot of the heavy makeup on. She's, um, I wouldn't say dumpy, but a, a little bit frumpy. You know, she's she's somewhat verbally abused by her boyfriend, played by Sammy Sum, and she's the character that you ultimately are, you know, kind of tasked to identify with. Every The other four characters, um, which include Sammy Sum, uh, Luk Chung Kwong, and Jumbo Tsang, um, also Patrick Kong regular, um, they are, uh, kind of not nice people basically, but they're kind of brought back together from the brink of breakup because of, you know, this influx of money that they can suddenly make. So Jacqueline is really the only sympathetic character, um, and she plays her role quite well. And she's troubled by the fact that she's just found out that she's pregnant and she doesn't know if she should tell, um, her boyfriend. So she's seeking solace in her auntie. Uh, played by um, Susan Shaw. And uh, a little bit later, we get cameos, of course, from the great La Lan, uh, who basically gets to play herself, and she's kind of the best thing in the movie. A, a little bit later, as the film gets going and the characters start to think that they're actually being haunted, uh, they decide to go and meet with uh, La Lan's character, who's this, you know, she's like this famous uh ghost guru basically but uh, when they go meet her 
she's basically just being herself. She's basically saying, hey, I'm just an actress. You know, uh, I don't really believe in this stuff. They, you know, throw some lights on me and, and they ask me to speak in a spooky voice. But, you know, uh, I, I believe in in God and Jesus and I don't believe in, you know, ghosts. So I'm sorry, I can't help you guys. So it's kind of funny as she... Uh, as she gets a chance to sort of self-reflect a little bit. And she's only really got a minor minor part in the film compared with the other characters, but it's always great to see her uh, in the genre pieces. So between her and Susan Shaw and Jacqueline Chong, they're, they're probably the strongest uh, points of the film. Uh, Sammy Sum does get a lot of the screen time of the film, perhaps a bit too much. His character's basically a jerk. You, you don't really care much about him. Um, and... Uh, I mean, I guess acting-wise, he fulfills that role because he does bring out a lot of dislike for the character. So you don't really care a lot about some of the stuff when some of the stuff starts to happen to him. Really, the only character you feel sympathetic for is, is Jacqueline Chong's character. The film itself looks good. Uh, they've got what I'd say is above-average cinematography going on for the genre. They've got uh, you know nice colors and nice shots in places. Uh, the music is nothing extraordinary, unfortunately. It's not memorable as, as a theme. Um, basically there to provide some tension and some jump scares at times. Um, once the reveal of what happened goes on, there's really not much scary in the film. Um, there's a sequence, in fact, that I would say is a direct ripoff from the I-2, which is very disappointing. They basically take the suicide scene from the I-2 and they replay that um, a few times over and they add in a little bit of the, uh, uh, I, I guess, kind of a carryover from uh, the creature from the ring, the ghost in the ring. So it's kind of like a little bit of a mashup of those two. But it's really, I mean... It, I, I was kind of insulted at that point, thinking, really, Mr. Kong? I mean, our memories are not that short, and the I-2 wasn't a great film, but I think a lot of people saw it because they liked the I-1. Um, you know, can, can, you, can you get any more plagiaristic than just ripping uh, basically a scare sequence from that film and, and putting it in this film? Maybe that's a discussion for a different thing. You know, is it okay for a writer or a director to take something that exists in one film and modify it slightly, but not enough so that you know exactly where that's coming from. Um, you know, what is, is the difference between homage and paying homage to something and, and ripping off something? Yeah. That's I'm, the difference. I, I mean, I guess it could still fall into the homage category, but I just didn't get that sense. And especially w once the narrative plays out, there's just so many questions as to why some of the, so each of the characters starts to experience hauntings of a different fashion. Um, so, for example, Luke Chung Kwong's character, he ends up uh, um, meeting a prostitute played by um, Vivian Law, who's done some cameo work in, in some of uh, other films before, but not, not a big celebrity. I think she's kind of been out of the scene for about a year or so. Um, but their sequence it, it almost, almost kind of pushes to Category 3 territory, um, but not quite. Uh, sort of, you know, that borderline that the Lan Kwai Fong films um, tend to tread. So, but that, that sequence uh, happens, and then there's another haunting that kind of happens with um, the Jumbo Tsang's character, but hers is not really a haunting. Hers is more with a, a, a psycho guy, boy, you know, ex, psych, psycho ex-boyfriend, 
but then they try and tie these things back to the overarching haunting that's actually happening to the characters from this one kind of singular event that prompts the haunting. So a lot of it doesn't make sense by, by the end. Um, and, and this, is, I think, is my, my bigger problem. If, you know, it might have worked much better had he gone the Hong Kong ghost stories route and made this you know, separate stories, separate hauntings altogether, rather than trying to tie them all up to uh, one single narrative. Now, to spoil the plot a little bit, when you think about logic in ghost stories, and I know this is probably something that I shouldn't do, but it's something that bugs me more and more the more of these that I see. If someone kills me, and I become a ghost, okay, now I've had a tragic death as the result of a ghost, why don't I then go after that ghost? Right? <laughs> you know, you know, sort of ghost on ghost action. I mean, this is kind of the premise, right? You know, you die a tragic death and you come back to haunt the people that have been involved or have caused that that death, right? But if a ghost oh. causes that death, then you should come back and you know, you know, have a, have a slap fest with the ghost or something, right? Well, well, I think I think ghost on ghost action is a is a category free softcore <laughs> porn film that I have a VHS of. Okay, I'm so gonna, I, I, might, I might find your copy. I'm, of yeah, let, let me borrow action. that. Let me borrow yeah. that. Um, so yeah, this is the thing that constantly runs through my minds because we see these same kind of plot devices used over and over, and and nobody seems to address it. The other thing too here is that a lot of times. And what, we, what we'll see happen is like, all right, you know, here's a group of people who were incidentally involved in harming somebody, but there was somebody else who did like severe harm, but we never see the repercussions to that particular character, right? Um, so th there's just some sloppy, I, I guess, thought processes going into, into here. Um, as a ghost film, it's not entirely terrible. I'd say that this is um, somewhat better than a couple of the segments in Hong Kong Ghost Stories, which uh, he worked on a couple years ago. And um, what was the what was the other one he did, Kevin? Forgive and Forget? I think it's Forgive and Forget. That's yeah, the, yeah. Um, which he did a long time ago. Uh, I, I'd say that this this is probably better overall than, than um, either of those. But... Um, there's still stuff here that's very annoying at, at times. Um, there, there's a couple places where they're, you know, they're dealing with budgetary issues. I don't want to say they're cheap, but all right. So there's one scene where a character gets their throat cut. And to show this, rather than doing a prosthetic effect, rather than doing even a CG effect, which is all the rage today, they basically just flip the camera behind the character and show a knife you know, from a reverse shot being drawn across the throat. So you don't even see any blood, right? You just see the, the action and the person falls. It's like, you know, 1970s Shaw Brothers stuff did better throat cuts than this. So it does get a little bit cheap in places. And they do throw in a weird twist at the end, you know, sort of a Patrick Kong style twist. But it's just kind of lame. It's really lame. And it's just poorly executed. It's, a, it's supposed to be a visual thing that... You know, when you think about it on paper, kind of sounds like it would be good and, and creepy, but the way they kind of execute it, it's just a, a poor execution of, of a twist that they felt they needed to kind of throw in and that uh, probably they could have done away with. Um, overall, though, I'd say as a if you like the ghost genre stuff, there's some stuff here that's entertaining. This is not going to be overly memorable um, in the pantheon of Hong Kong ghost films, but it's not the worst that I've seen um, in a long time, but it does have a couple moments that are, that tend to be a little bit 
uh, annoying in general. I'd say if we went back and if I compared this with, um, what was the one we talked about from Carrie M mm, a couple weeks ago? Um, uh, not, not Who's There. Yeah, not, I, I'd say that that one's probably uh, a bit more entertaining. And uh, in, in terms of narrative structure, is you know, as an anthology that is somewhat interconnected, has a better overall narrative structure and, and better scares in, in particular. Um, just, just overall, though I, you know, to give credit to this movie, I'd say, I'm, I really liked uh, Jacqueline Chong in it and, and her performance. So, Kevin, this is not a film that uh, is up your alley, as we know. Uh, I'll catch it on video. Yeah, video and fast forward, right? No, I don't fast forward through films, Paul. Not, not them. even, not even horror movies. No, I just don't finish them. Okay. <laughs> listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit kongcast.com for more. All right, you have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Gobbers of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research came from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. And we enjoy having a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. In fact, we did get a very nice email from a listener. Um, I won't reveal their name here because uh, I didn't know if they wanted to be mentioned directly. But a listener in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, wrote to us um, and just basically said that uh, really enjoyed having the show back and really liked um, that we're you know spending a bit more time on... Uh, the east screen side of things versus the west screen side of things. And I do know that there's a lot of coverage out there when it comes to uh, west screen films, and ours is not a voice that is really trying to compete on that market at all uh, in the podcast arena. But uh, occasionally, you know, the idea is that if we don't have a local film to talk about, um, you know, we'll try and switch over to an interesting west screen film. And I'm still wrestling with the idea of um, should we tackle the um the 800 pound force gorilla that's coming out in december or not um i'll, I'll discuss that with what uh, the snoopy movie yeah the snoopy movie the, the charlie brown the peanuts film well, we got um, that. <clears throat> uh yeah but, but you know december's always tricky because um i'll be on the road for part of it and i'm sure kevin's going to be busy too but we might try to do some remote recording of stuff for some shows um to, to keep some content flowing and, you know, I, I do like talking about the occasional, uh, you know, big movie, geeky movie from time to time and getting uh, Mr. Ma's geeky thoughts on things as well. So we'll, we'll see what's coming. But, yeah, our primary focus is to try and focus as much as possible on local films. Um, and that's going to be the way things are, at least for the short term going forward. But uh, thank you for writing in. And again, if you would like to be uh, part of the show, we would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us via the website at concast.com, or you can hit us up over on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast. You can email us directly, eastscreen at gmail.com, or you can drop over and look us up on Facebook at East S West S. And of course, I would urge you to keep up with Kevin as he flies the friendly skies and goes here and goes there and writes about movies. So, Kevin, where can people catch up with what you're up to? Uh, you can follow my daily news writings on Film Business Asia. That's www.filmbiz.asia. 
Um, you can, you know, read uh, my work, and, and I'm very proud of these, you know, uh, co-workers over at Discovery Magazine and, and Silk Road Magazines, now on board uh, on your Cathay Pacific and Dragon Air flights. You can also get Discovery on the iPad uh, through our iPad app, which you can find uh, in the iTunes store. Just look up um, Discovery, uh, and you will find the newsstand app. There, um, I'm very excited about the November issue, and I'm even more excited about upcoming December content. Um, there's a great, great article, so I hope you can uh, check it out. Um, and we have a very, very lovely iPad app that's been nominated for an award, I think. Um, and also, the magazine is is also you know up for an award for launch of the year. Um, so, so I'm yeah, I'm super proud to be on this team, and I think um, we have a lot of great content. Uh, and I think you guys will enjoy it too, even if you're not flying uh, on the Cathay Pacific. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at w at, uh, well at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. You can email me at Kevin at Fimbiz Asia. Um, yeah, that's that's about it. I mean, you, you can also see my name in in uh, upcoming film. Uh, I will reveal when. I guess the film is coming up to release, but I'm working on the subtitles this weekend, so I will talk more about that later. Excellent. Our next show, number 178. I think it's going to be She Remembers, He Forgets, and uh, that should be on my to-watch list in the uh, next, next few days. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying, don't play with Ouija boards, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. We're back after a short four fur letter. Nah. <laughs> Not long enough. I'm your host, Paul Fox, and coming to me. Uh, it's going to be one of those it's days. Going to the yeah. 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 Well, uh, you know, it's the law, so. The law. I am the law. I am the law. Thank you, Mr. Ma, for your news this week. <laughs> You're like, he's proud of the long impression. Let's go. <laughs> Let's move on.